Well, when he stepped off the boat in Calcutta in 1793, there's no way that the British Baptist missionary William Carey could have fully understood the movement that he was heralding. There's no way he could have imagined how this would change the world as we know it, but it did. Even though he had been praying for this movement for years, even though he had been mobilizing for it, even though he had taken criticism and faced off against enemies in pursuit of it, there's no way he could have known how the modern missionary movement that he was helping to bring about would change the world, would turn the world upside down. And it has in remarkable ways. Unfortunately, you might be surprised to learn that the Protestants were quite late in the game when it came to missions. A couple years ago, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And what a wonderful thing the Protestant Reformation was. It restored to us a proper understanding of how we are saved by grace through faith. It put the scriptures back in the hands of the people so we could read them and learn the gospel from them. What a wonderful achievement the Protestant Reformation was. And yet, for over 250 years, think about this, for a quarter of a millennium, that Protestant Reformation did not launch a missionary movement. So while Protestants spent time arguing about baptism and about the Lord's Supper and what shape pews should be and everything else and dividing themselves into 10,001 denominations, places like Latin America were given over to Roman Catholicism and many parts of Asia as well. So in the early 16th century, the Protestant Reformation comes and yet it's not until the very end of the 18th century, close to 300 years later, before the Protestants began to send missionaries out to reach the world. Let that sink in for a second. Almost 300 years in possession of the good news of the gospel, and yet taking it to virtually no one. And yet once the modern missionary movement started with Carey and others, what a transformation has taken place, even in the last century or so. Consider this, a place like Africa at the turn of the 19th and 20th century, perhaps there were, through strenuous efforts of missionaries, perhaps a million Christians. Now, today, a hundred years later, there are over 300 million people who name the name of Christ on the continent of Africa. And some estimates are it is the continent with the most Christians of any continent in the world today. Consider a place like Korea, which had virtually no Christians at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. And now 30% of the population of Korea is Christian. And it is, after the United States, the second largest missionary sending country in the world. Imagine that. Think about a place like the People's Republic of China, Communist China, where 12 hours ago this morning there were more believers in church there than there are right now in the United States of America. 
let that sink in for a second. The modern missionary movement has transformed the world and has been a miracle in our own day. And it started with the boldness and the vision of men like William Carey being willing to go out as pioneers. And William Carey's catchphrase that he loved to use was this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things for God and attempt great things for God. A a beautiful balance of all of our hope is in Christ. We depend entirely on the Holy Spirit and yet we've been given work to do. It's ours to take initiative in the fulfilling of the Great Commission. It's a wonderful and glorious task that we have been given. So expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. You know, this was the spirit that motivated the very earliest apostles as well. One of my favorite books, and I guess this is natural as a a mission pastor, one of my favorite books that I go back to all the time is, of course, the book of Acts. It's so inspirational to see how God used the early apostles and the early missionaries to grow the church. It's a miraculous thing, in fact. And one of my favorite accounts is when the Apostle Paul, you remember, receives the, the so-called Macedonian call, right? And he's, all of the, the, the work of, of missionaries and the apostles have been confined to Asia at this time. But the Apostle Paul is called to go to Europe to take the gospel to Macedonia, northern Greece, and then down into the rest of Europe. And in Acts chapter 17, we're told that the Apostle Paul goes over to Europe He establishes a church at Philippi. He starts to work his way down towards Athens and Corinth, the more substantial cities in Greece. And along the way, he and Timothy and Silas are making their way and they're they're planting churches and they're preaching in the synagogue as, as he was wont to do. And they arrive in the city of Thessaloniki a city that that had a very vibrant Jewish culture there. And so Paul, as is his wont, goes to the synagogue and begins to preach. And we understand that he is making converts, it would seem, and he's fashioning the makings of a church there in this very important city. And I love what the account says because Paul and Timothy and Silas, they get themselves in trouble because their mission is being successful. People are coming to Christ, it would seem. People are interested, intrigued by Paul's preaching, and they're coming back one Sabbath after another to hear more from him. And so the the officials are stirred up by the Jewish population in that town to work against Paul and Silas and Timothy. And what do they say? They say, "These, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Isn't that amazing? Here's the Apostle Paul, probably in Europe for the first time. Similarly, Timothy and Silas, these these early Christian leaders in the very earliest days of the church. They don't have any political power. They haven't come with an army of any sort. They're not there slaying people with swords. They're not there starting a political movement. They haven't killed anybody, right? Right? But yet, by the time they arrive in Thessaloniki, what is being said of them? These men who have turned the world upside down are now here. 
And they didn't mean this in a positive way, by the, by the way. Right? This wasn't a compliment. This was, these guys are trouble and they have to be dealt with because this gospel message is in fact turning the world upside down. And we've got to do something about it. You see, my brothers and sisters, our God is a global God. He's not a local God like the gods of the Philistines and the gods of Israel's enemies. He is the one and only true God. He is a global God. And he has his mind set on the nations. And when he gave us his great commission, it was to make disciples of what? Our nation? Of one nation? Of a few nations? No, of all nations. Of all people groups. Of all tribes and tongues and languages. And that's a mandate that, that is for us as the church. Our God is not a tribal God. He is the God of every tribe and every nation. The first point I want to leave you with this morning is this. In His wisdom and goodness, God has chosen us to be His agents to disciple the nations. Indeed, to turn the world upside down with the gospel message. To be honest, I'm not sure why God would choose us to do this. If you were God, would you choose you <laughs> to do this most important work of discipling nations? I'm not sure why He has chosen us, but it's quite clear that He has, that we are to be the agents, we are to be the instruments whereby the world hears the gospel message and indeed is turned upside down by it. William Carey, before he came from England over to India, wrote a, a little book. He called it The Inquiry. And the reason he wrote this book was he was receiving so much resistance to the idea of actually launching a missionary movement to what he called the heathen nations, such as India. A lot of resistance. You'd be surprised. Almost nobody was with him on this originally. It seems like a no-brainer for us, but for him, it was an extremely controversial idea. Let's start a mission society, and let's send English men and English women out to places like India to preach the gospel. And people stood up and called him a madman for it. People in his own church, people in his own association of Baptist churches, thought he should be silenced for such an impertinent suggestion. So he wrote a book in which he investigated, why is it, why on earth is it that We've been around as a, as a Protestant movement for a quarter of a millennium and we're not reaching the nations with the gospel. Do we think that the Great Commission is not still binding on us in some way? Has it expired? Was there an expiration date put on it by Jesus? Clearly the nations haven't been discipled. So what's going on here? And what he figured out in his investigation and in talking with his members of his church and, and others in England, he, he figured out basically that the prevailing spirit was, and many people said it in these very words, if God wants to save those pagans in those other countries, he will find a means to do it. People said that to carry in those very words. If God wants to save the heathen of other nations, he'll find a means to do it. To which Carey's response was, to which our response was, yes, he found a means. And guess what that means is? It's you and me. The Great Commission is quite clear on this point. Go, you go, 
and make disciples. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He didn't say, come and watch me disciple the nations. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. What people got confused, I think, about, what people got confused about was the difference between salvation, which is God's business and God's business alone, and discipling the nations, which is a job that he's given to us. So we have to be very clear to affirm that salvation, we can't save anybody. We can present the gospel to people, but we cannot save a person's soul. You can't save a person. You can introduce him or her to the God who can. But salvation is God's business and God's business alone. He's the only one with the power to save through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But let's not be confused for a second. He's not given us the job of saving people, but he has given us the wonderful task of discipling the nations. Could he have been more clear than he was in the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I am with you always to the end of the age. We promise, we're promised that as we do so, we operate under the authority of Jesus Christ himself, and we're promised of his presence as we do it as well. What a wonderful promise that is. What a clear charge we have been given. And yet, how are we doing, brothers and sisters, on this point? Are we doing what God has called us to do? God is sovereign. The Holy Spirit moves where he pleases. But it won't do for us to say that it's God's job to disciple the nations. That's a job he's given to us to do. Are we doing it? Well, the the commission is so clear, but I want to argue this morning that we have often neglected it. I'm disappointed in our day at how many Christians have seemed to have completely forgotten about the Great Commission. They love to get caught up in causes for social justice and ending poverty and saving the whales or whatever else it might be. And none of those things are necessarily bad, but it's an exercise in putting the cart before the horse. Those are not our instructions. The instructions that we've been given by God is to disciple the nations. And if and when we disciple the nations, guess what? All sorts of other good things will happen. All those other things happen when the nations are discipled. And yet for many people, this is, for many churches, this is not at the center of what they do. This is not part of their central calling. They see it as something that maybe we can do if we have some extra time, extra money, extra resources we can find under the couch. Maybe we'll we'll turn our attention to that rather than seeing it at the center of what we do and what we're to be about. Well, here at Capshaw Baptist Church, you're going to turn the world upside down. I really believe it. God has gifted you mightily for this task. And he's given you a leader who is dedicated to this task and single-minded for it. You're going to turn the world upside down for the gospel. But let me suggest this morning, there are three ways that you're going to turn the world upside down. Three specific ways that you at this church will, will turn the world upside down for the gospel. First of all, you will turn the world upside down through your steadfastness in prayer. You will turn the world upside down through your steadfastness in prayer. 
All those who have studied mission history, I've spent a career studying mission history, everybody agrees on one point at least. And that is that no great movement of the Holy Spirit, no great mission movement, no great ingathering of the nations has ever happened throughout history that wasn't preceded by a fervent movement of prayer of God's people. Not once. You can't point to one. There has never been an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of the nations to Christ that hasn't been preceded by steadfast prayer of his people. I wonder, sisters and brothers, are we on our knees pleading for the nations? How much time do we spend on our knees pleading for the nations? Jesus said this, the harvest is plentiful, right? You know this, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, the, the first business is prayer. If you'd never read that, read that before, what would you guess would come after that first phrase, right? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Get out there and make it happen, right? That's what you would guess he says next. But he doesn't. He's not that he's not saying that, but what does he say next? Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Implore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. All the more interesting that Jesus, the two records we have of this in the Gospels, Jesus says this immediately when he's about to send out emissaries to do the work of mission. This immediately precedes this. Pray, but also pray with a view to going yourself. Pray with a view of being prepared to go wherever God will send you to go. This was an immediate context of sending out people into unreached fields. Well, the greatest of American theologians, Jonathan Edwards, says this, It is God's will that the prayer of his saints shall be great and the principal means of carrying on the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. When God has something to accomplish for his church, listen to this, this is Jonathan Edwards, this is not somebody out the street. When God has something to accomplish for his church, it is with his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayer of his people. When God wants to, and there's mystery here to be sure, but when God intends to accomplish something, he intends to accomplish it through the prayers of his people. I ask the question again, how much time do we spend on our knees begging God for the nations? We do not receive because we do not ask. I think it's pretty simple. Jesus said you, you don't receive because you don't ask. Do we have the boldness to ask God for the nations? Do we have boldness to ask God that he would stay the hand of this wicked false religion of Islam where it's making advances all over the world and blinding people and not giving them an opportunity to hear the true message of the gospel? Do we have the boldness to pray against those strongholds? Would we dare ask God for the nation of North Korea where there's very few Christians and those who are mostly locked up and persecuted and tortured? Would we dare ask that God would do a, work, a miraculous work there? Maybe even bring their evil dictator to faith in Christ? 
Would we dare ask for something like that or is that ridiculous to even think about? Are we steadfast and are we bold in our prayer life for the nations? So first of all, we will turn the world upside down. You will turn the world upside down through your steadfastness in prayer. Secondly, you will turn the world upside down by training and multiplying leaders of character and courage. You will turn the world upside down by training leaders and multiplying leaders, but leaders of character and courage. You know, I want to suggest to you this morning that the lack of leadership in the church is the biggest problem we face in the church in the world. It's not persecution from without. In fact, the persecution from without often helps the church. See that time and time again in history. Mike could even use a good dose of it here. Get us off of our couches. Keep us on our toes. Keep us on our knees. No, it's not that. It's the lack of courageous and character leadership that we see all around the world. This is a problem. And it's not a good problem to have. It's a bad problem to have. That there are places in the world where people are coming to Christ. That's not a problem. People are coming to Christ, but there's nobody to lead them and nobody to shepherd them. place that I've spent much of my career praying about and ministering to and teaching about is China. And I have a great burden for China and, and I'm encouraged by the number of people who come to Christ there, but People are coming to Christ at a rate of 5,000 per day in China. Now, how many leaders, how many shepherds do you need to shepherd 5,000 people a day? It's a lot. Let's say it's 1 to 100. You need 50 qualified shepherds, leaders being trained every day. It's not happening. And that's not a good problem to have because guess what happens to sheep who are left without a shepherd? What happens to sheep who are left without a shepherd? Wolves come in and take them. They tend to stray, fall off cliffs. And once they're gone, once they're taken by the wolves, once they disappear, they very rarely come back. It's a crisis level. We don't have leaders of courage and character. And as in any organization, so it is in the church. Leadership means everything. I love the old quote from the, attributed to Alexander the Great. I am not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep. I am afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. So it is in the church of Jesus Christ as well. As the leadership goes, so goes the church, you see. And Paul was emphatic on this. Paul, this was his method in imitation of his Lord Jesus Christ, by which the multiplying gospel would make an impact all over the world. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in his second letter to him, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. An important work that he gave to Timothy was passing on what he had learned. To other men who could then teach others also. See, that's multiplication taking place. And this is the great need of 
the hour for us. And you'd be surprised how many churches, even in our own land, are not producing leaders. It's one thing to produce converts. It's one thing to put bums in seats. But it's another thing to produce leaders. And it doesn't happen by accident or by osmosis. It happens through intentionality. So far better to have a church of 100 people that, that generates five leaders than a church of 10,000 that generates none. Because guess what? By the miracle of multiplication, which one is going to have an impact on the world? Not the 10,000 without a leader. It's the 100 that are generating one or two leaders. That's how multiplication works, you see. This was the example of Christ, by the way. <laughs> Think about the ministry of Christ for a second. If I was Christ, if you were Christ, the temptation would be, guess what? I'm going to always focus on those four or 5,000 hungry people who I can feed. That's a captive audience I can preach to. But if you read your Gospels very carefully, and I'm sure you do, if you read your Gospels very carefully, what do you notice? More often than not, Jesus trying to get away from the big crowd so that he can focus on the 12. You ever notice that? Sure, he did some preaching to larger crowds. But guess what? It was often in riddles. It was in parables that they, they half didn't understand. He saved the good stuff for the twelve. Why? His job wasn't to, wasn't to bring a million people to faith. It was to train a dozen men who would go out and teach others also and teach others also and teach others also. But what's the temptation for us as leaders in the church? I feel this myself. It's to preach to a thousand rather than train two or three. I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a temptation that I try to resist. I go to India two or three times a year. And my job there, my, my, my ministry there is very focused. We choose about a dozen men and women to teach, to train, to become leaders in the, in the church there, to be evangelists, church planters, all sorts of different things. The job is very clear. But guess what? Every time I go there, guess what happens? One of the students says, hey, come back to my village. We'll do a revival meeting. Come and preach. I can promise 100 people will come forward if you do an altar call. And my answer is always no. That's tempting, but no, that's not what I'm here to do. You know, as Jesus said, you give them something to eat. That's your job. My job is to train you. I'm not going to take my eye off that ball. Because this is where the real gold is found. If I train you, and you train 10 more, and you train 10 more, guess what? That's how the mustard seed grows into a beautiful tree. I've done the math on this, by the way, and it's very intriguing. Jesus, in the course of a three-year ministry, approximately, trained 12 men. Only 11 of them finished the program, shall we say. 11 trained men. <clears throat> That's not very impressive by some standards. That's all you have to show for your ministry? 11 trained men? When he was on the cross, none of them were to be found. None of the thousands he had preached to. Many were devoted to them. Where were they? And yet, these are the men who turned the world upside down for the gospel. And furthermore, as I said, I've done the math on this. If they had all done as Jesus did, that is, train 11 men in a three-year ministry, and they had equipped them to train another 11 men, Guess what? In one generation, in 30 years, approximately a generation, you get a quarter of a billion followers of Jesus Christ, which was the approximate population of the world in Jesus' day. 
Jesus gave us a model for reaching the world, the entire world for the gospel in one generation, if only we would follow it. But instead, we'd rather preach to 10, 20,000 people and feel like we've accomplished something. But where are they? Where's the multiplication there? No, the urgent need of the hour, sisters and brothers, is training men and women, faithful witnesses who will be able to teach others also. Acts chapter 14, we hear this about Paul's ministry. When they had preached the gospel to that city, they're in the city of Derby, and had made many disciples, this is in verse 21, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's a wonderful sermon outline right there. And listen to this. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That little phrase, it seems so innocuous, but I think it's so important. After he had appointed elders for them in every church. You see, Paul knew his job wasn't done until he had left the church in good hands. Until he had given them leaders of character and courage who could carry on the work while he was gone. He was busy entrusting the gospel to these faithful men who would teach others also. He was leaving all these churches well-led. You see, courage and character are called for because the task is not easy. It's not easy. You have to understand, these elders that he was appointing in these churches, it wasn't just to sit on, you know, have board meetings and so on. These men had a mark on their chest for death. You realize that? In the Roman Empire, persecutions came and went. But when the persecutions hit town, guess who were the people who, couldn't, who didn't have any excuse or no plausible deniability? The guys who were the elders of the church. I was just visiting this Sunday. No, 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 no. You're one of the elders. We're rounding you up, you see. It was not a glamorous job. It was not one that people were clamoring to have, to be honest. That's why Paul had to emphasize to Timothy, it's a noble task to desire to be an elder. Because all, all the evidence seems to be to the contrary. It's a dangerous task. You have to have people of character and courage. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, for example, gives the qualifications for elders, guess what? None of them are about skill sets or talents. It's all about issues of character. Every single qualification is an issue of character, not of, not of skill. And it's acknowledgement of the fact that following Jesus can be, is, a wild, unpredictable ride where safety is not guaranteed. Much like being a passenger when John Sloan is driving the car. <clears throat> this is not the time for telling tales out of school, but I will tell one. I have had the privilege of ministering with this man, I don't know, three or four different continents, a bunch of different states, many countries, many different contexts. And I've always been impressed by his character and courage, not as impressed by his driving. I can remember one time being in Brazil with him, and he's in an unfamiliar car, in an unfamiliar culture, on unfamiliar roads. And I was riding shotgun, 
And at times I wish I had a literal shotgun with me to take care of business. But as we're going down these streets, it's kind of like a Disney ride only, and Disney rides can be terrifying only without the knowledge that there's any rails or any safety mechanisms to save you. Those were good times, and I died in telling that story. That didn't have a purpose. That was reminisce, if you'll allow me. But courage and character are called for because the task is not easy, and following Jesus at times is going to scare you. <laughs> As a recent theologian has said, if, if following Jesus doesn't at times scare you, you might have to ask, am I really following Jesus? Being a leader means facing down some dangers. It's been my privilege to minister with men and women of courage all over the world. I can remember one man who I met just a few years ago in India. He had become a Christian out of a Hindu fam- a family of Hindu priests. His family was so scandalized and embarrassed and shocked by his conversion to Christianity that his dad, a Hindu priest, had him buried alive and left for dead. Didn't even have the decency to put a bullet in his head before he buried him alive. And yet, miraculously, he was saved. (laughs) Now you meet this guy, you can't wipe the smile off his face. He's one of the happy-go-luckiest men, but what what he's been through for the sake of the gospel. And he is a man of tested courage and character. I know another man who became a, a believer and his father bought a gun with the intention of coming home and killing him. His father now attends church with him, but he's a leader of courage and character, you see. Tough days are coming, I might suggest, and courage and character are what's called for. Are we developing leaders to shepherd the flock with sensitivity, patience, biblical wisdom, courage, and character? Finally, you will turn the world upside down let me suggest to you, by planting churches. You brought this concept up at all here? I believe you have. You know, this was the apostles' method, planting churches. This is what the apostle Paul did. He'd go from one place to another, and he would plant a church. He didn't just go and indiscriminately preach the gospel. He fashioned the new converts into bodies, most of them meeting at homes and so forth, yes, fashioning them into churches, giving them leaders of courage and character, and then moving on to the next opportunity and planting churches. And that's how the gospel multiplied. That's how the world was being turned turned upside down within one generation of Jesus' ascension. This seems to be, by all evidence, historical and otherwise statistical. There seems to be no substitute for the planting of churches. Sociologist Peter Wagner says, planting new churches is the most effective evangelistic methodology known under heaven. For many of the reasons that Pastor John has, has articulated, new churches do a better job, for a number of reasons, do a better job of bringing in new converts, of making an impact among the unchurched and the de-churched and the non-churched and the anti-churched and so on. The planting of new churches. This seems to be the plan, the apostolic plan for how the message is going to go forward. Planting of new churches. 
And I know my church in Florida, we're on the cusp of planting a new church, and this is what I'm more excited about than anything else in my ministry. The idea that we're going to plant a new church in the eastern part of our county where people are moving in in large numbers, but as best I can tell, only the Mormons are doing much in the area. There's not a gospel witness. And this is in the United States of America. This isn't in New Guinea. It excites me. How about you? Are you excited to see churches planted? Whether it's in Athens, Greece, or Athens, Alabama, are you excited about this prospect? Amen. (laughs) And are you willing to get involved? (laughs) Are you willing to give some of your best people to the project? We don't want your worst people. You're willing to give some of your best people. And I mean it. Are you willing to count? Have you counted that cost and are willing to pay it? One of my greatest frustrations as a mission pastor, incidentally, is I've met many people who are gung-ho for missions. They, they support missionaries. They give thousands of dollars. They go on mission trips. They pray for missions. But guess when that interest comes screeching to a halt, when the son comes home and says, I want to be a missionary? All of a sudden, the enthusiasm for missions dries up. Why is that? Now it's going to cost me something. (laughs) I can't have back. So how what's it going to be, uh, Capshaw Baptist Church? What's it going to be for you? A church that isn't on its knees. A church that isn't raising up leaders. A church that isn't fulfilling the Great Commission is playing church, not being the church. So what's it going to be for you? What's it going to be for us? Well, I know you have a senior pastor who's not here to play church, a man who's on his knees, a man who's endeavoring to raise up leaders, a man who wants to see this body fulfill the Great Commission. What about you? Are you on board with this project? By the way, this only applies if you are spiritually alive. The Bible makes it clear you're either spiritually alive or you're spiritually dead. There's no place in between. You're spiritually alive if you've been born again. You're spiritually alive if the Holy Spirit has worked in you, convinced you of the truth of the gospel message, has made you understand that you were dead in your sins, that there's nothing you could do to ingratiate yourself to God, that you're separated from God and there's nothing on earth you could do about it to change your condition. But God in His grace and His mercy sent His Son Jesus Christ so that you could be reconciled to Him, so you could have hope for now and hope for eternity. That He would take your sins, wipe them away, And in fact, clothe you with the righteousness of Jesus himself. So that when God looks on you, he doesn't see your filthy sins. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Unless you have ever in your life thrown yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, then you are not born again. You are not spiritually alive. But I'm talking to those of you who are spiritually alive and you know you are. Are you on board? But it's going to cost you something. Like I said, it might cost you your best people. There's preachers that run around today talking about health and wealth. Jesus has promised you nothing of the sort. In fact, most of the people I know who have really followed Christ, it's cost them their health and it's cost them their wealth and much more. But it's worth it. It's 
worth all of it. William Carey went to India. He lost just about everything. Lost two wives, two sons that he probably wouldn't have lost if he had stayed comfortable in England. Nearly lost his mind. The work was so hard. The work was so painful. And when he was finished, he didn't have an awful lot to show for it, to be honest. But through the miracle of multiplication and the work of God's Holy Spirit there, he launched a movement which has transformed the world, which has turned the world upside down. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to pay that cost? And be honest with yourself. Are you willing to pay that cost? I just want to suggest to you this morning that it is worth it. Jesus is worth it. The gospel is worth it. The people outside these doors who have never heard the gospel clearly explained, they're worth it. The people in Athens, Alabama, the people in Athens, Greece are worth it. The people in Denver, Colorado are worth it. The people in Portland, Oregon are worth it. God sent his son to die for those people. But they haven't heard the good news whereby they can be reconciled to God. Are they going to hear it from your lips? Maybe not. Are they going to hear it from the lips of somebody you sent? Possibly. What's it going to be? Well, my prayer is that you will turn the world upside down with the gospel message. That people will, will say, hey, that, here come those guys from Capshaw who turned the world upside down. Here they come. They may mean it positively. They may mean it negatively. Who cares? They'll see you coming because they'll know how God has used this place. Can I pray this morning that God will use you in that way? And would you pray with me? Lord, I want to pray for my sisters and brothers here. I thank you for those who are here, who are in you, and have been saved, not through any works that they have done, not through their religiosity, not through pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, but they've been saved as an act of your grace alone. They've repented of their sins, acknowledging their need for you, and you have miraculously saved them. And not only that, but you will save them for all eternity, and you even call them your sons and daughters. Lord, I pray for each, each one who has never heard that, that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day that they would be born again. They would recognize that they cannot reach you through their own efforts and that they would put their faith in Jesus Christ, the only one who can reconcile them to the Father. Well, Lord, for those, of, those in here who are in Christ, Lord, would you excite them with a vision for how you want to use them you would show them the, the ways that you mean to use them. Give them a vision for how they may turn the world upside down. Lord, I pray that this would be a church on its knees. I pray that this would be a church where leaders are trained up and deployed to disciple the nations. Lord, I pray that you would help them as they contemplate planting churches following the example of the apostles and Jesus himself. Lord, I pray that you would give them great wisdom, discernment, give them the resources that they need to do it. 
But most importantly, give us the hearts, the hearts that have counted the cost and found you worth it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.